<laughs> now gather yourself in troops, the daughter of troops, uh, he has laid siege against you, or against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the chest, but you, Ephesah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up, until the time that she, who is in labor, has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock, and the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, uh, and they shall abide. And now he shall be great to the children And this one will be our piece. It's a bad verse break there. So, um, in verse 1, you see the now. Now, what have they done? <coughs> Struck the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. It doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? God's leader in Israel has gone down. He's been struck. Uh, they've laid siege against us. Now it looks like God's purposes are destroyed in the present time. The leadership of God's people has gone down. Both the northern and the southern kingdom would eventually go into captivity and there'd be no kingship. There'd be no dynasty. Now everything looks bleak. Here's the very leader, the king in Jerusalem, the one God had chosen, is, is struck down. But things are going to change. They're going to change in such an odd way. When God chooses to change things, He doesn't do it with regal splendor. He does it in very humble, simple ways. He picks this city. What's the city? Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, there was one, and only one, as far as I can tell, important thing about Bethlehem in the Old Testament. What was the one claim to fame for Bethlehem in the Old Testament? Yeah, David was, David was born there. But as far as being a significant city, it was not. It was too little to be among the clans of Judah. It, it, it was not an important city. Jerusalem, the city of the ruler that was struck down, that was the important capital city. Here's this little hamlet, Bethlehem Ephrathah. But from you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God was going to cause the ruler born in Lodi Bethlehem to triumph. He would be the one who would be ruler in Israel. And he is a whole different class and category. Because his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's been around forever. Now, what does that tell you about it? Is he, if he's from the days of eternity, absolutely he's God. There's no human being that's been around from the days of eternity. So he's really identifying this ruler that would bless the people, the one that's born in Bethlehem, would actually be God. And he would be the one who would reverse the horrible, painful childbirth. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor is born a child, and this child would be then this ruler. 
in Bethlehem. And he's going to arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And he's going to be great. And he'll be our peace. So he's identifying the great reversal of fortune, the great blessings that come when God brings a new ruler on the scene out of the agony of his people to lowly Bethlehem of he brings not only a king, but a king who is God. And a king who accomplishes these great and wonderful things for his people. That's an amazing prophecy. You know, when you study Old Testament passages in their context, they are stronger. You know, you probably knew Micah 5 too because you knew Bethlehem was predicted. Now, I don't know how you thought Bethlehem was predicted. You know, sometimes we might, if you just read that in the New Testament, you might think that there's some sort of a, you know, prophetic chapter in the Old Testament that says, okay, the Messiah, birthplace, Bethlehem, you know, time period, this, you know, etc. You just kind of had a list of, you know, here's the things about it. It's not like that. In the Bible, these prophecies are a part of context that teach a deeper spiritual lesson. And so, to me, this is very powerful when you see it in context. He's not just saying, well, it's going to happen to be Bethlehem. He's saying, this lowly, humble city is the one God is choosing to bring forth the glorious ruler, the ruler that's unlike any other, the ruler that's from the days of eternity, the ruler that's going to be divinely powerful to accomplish his will, the ruler that's great, the ruler that's our peace, that the future is going to be wonderful in spite of the pain in the present. So, you know, God says this in a context teaching very deep and helpful spiritual truths. So you've got three now and thens in this passage, starting 4.9 to 5.4. You've got the three nows that describe the, the agony of the present but leads to the blessings of the future. Comments and questions? Uh, how about verses 5 through 9? When the Assyrian invades our land and he trampels on our citadels, then we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight years of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod and its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and which he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down in tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. So, God is predicting this time of great blessing. <coughs> but had they not had times of great blessings already in the past? They had, hadn't they? And what had happened? And ended up in captivity. 
So what good is it going to do to have another time of great blessing? Well, when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod and its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land. In other words, God is going to give victory to his people. When another Assyrian army comes in, and he's using Assyria simply as the symbol of the enemies of God's people, then God's got an ample supply of weapons to use against him. Seven shepherds, that'd be a complete number of shepherds, and add one in terms of rulers of men. We'll get eight leaders of men, and they'll be able to deal with the Assyrians. So we're going to have blessings, and God will deal with the enemies. He'll deal with the threats against his people. Um, And then look at what he makes out of the remnant of his people. In verse 7, what are they like? rain from heaven? Yeah. They're like the dew and showers. What do the dew and the showers do? (laughs) Yes! They bring life and vigor and, and renewal. So what do God's people do? Wait for no one. What do they give to people? Life. Life, sure. They give, is that because they're so good? No. Where does it come from? Like do from the Lord. You know, God makes his people a source of life and strength and, and vitality for his people. That's what he's able to, to do with his people. That's how he's able to use them and bless them. And then, you know, what does he make out of them in verse 8? A lion. Now, what's the lion do? Yes. So God makes his people a source of blessing and a source of punishment. He uses them as the do and as a lion. It reminds me of the promise to Abraham. He that blesses you I will bless, and he that curses you I will curse. God's people are both the instrument of his blessing and of his punishment. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 2, the aroma of life and death. You know, because we preach a, a message of life and death, depending on people's response to it. And so he makes the remnant of his people like the dew and like a lion. That, you see the great blessings. God is giving his people protection and he's making something out of them. Come in some questions. Alright, yes, John. So is he saying this with a, a modern day context addressing their current situation against the Assyrians as well? I don't think so. I think he's in the salvation part. He's in the after the judgment. These are the blessings. And therefore when he speaks of the Assyrian coming, it's 
an enemy. The Assyrian nation would be gone by then. But it's, it's describing the future in the terms that they understand. The really common thing that's done in the prophets all around. I mean, Ezekiel 37 talks about how David will be their king. Talking about the Messiah. David's long gone by Ezekiel's day. But the Assyrians are not long gone this time. In fact, they're, they're at their door. Yes, that's exactly right. But he's still in this part of the passage. He's in the blessing section. So I think he's not talking about how they're going to rout the Assyrians right then. In fact, they don't rout the Assyrians right then. Uh, but he's talking about how when, when God blesses them in the future after the judgment, and they've got Assyrians that come in, they'll destroy them. That, that, I, I, that's my take because of the context in this part of the passage. Yes, Clint. So you said uh, being like a dew, it's like they're a source of spiritual like, blessing to the people, but being as a lion, they're also a, a type of punishment to the people, you said something like yes, that? Yes, because think about the message we preach. What, what happens when people, when people reject it? You know, we, we ultimately are a source of judgment also because we preach the message of life and death. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, he says, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Who is adequate for these things. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. Alright, 10 to 15. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorcerers from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So God changes his people in that day by cutting off what kinds of things? Military power. Military power, sorcery, sorcery, idols. You could group all this together, and what's he cutting off? Stuff that they trusted. Yeah, that's exactly it. The things they trusted in, whether it was military strength or whether it was religious, you know, things. Their false sources of confidence. He was going to take away from them so that they would trust him. That's how God changes and transforms his people. He wants us to trust him only. And so many times what we need to be able to trust him only is just take away a bunch of stuff from us. We don't have anything else to trust him. So he's going to transform his people and take away their horses, chariots, cities, and fortifications, and take away their sorceries, fortune tellers, card damage, sacred pillars, and the sheriff, and destroy their cities. Um... There's a couple of things that are interesting, strictly, um, from a form standpoint. Um, the first of these and the last of these have the from among you. 
10 that I will cut off from your, your horses from among you. And then in 14, I will root out your share from among you. None of the things in the middle have that. So that kind of bookends the things he's cutting off with the from among you. And then in 15, I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. And that kind of finishes off this section. Look back at 4.1. You've got the nations that do come and obey. And they're blessed on the mountain. The nations that don't, their uh, anger and wrath is executed against them in 5.15. I like seeing just some of the literary kinds of things because it helps you see how God planned this all out and it all fits together well. All right, comments and questions on chapter 5? Shane? I think sometimes, and myself included, I think sometimes we're so quick to, um, when somebody gets sick, pray that we heal, or whenever something hard is going on, pray that that thing will be gone. I think sometimes we need to pray more for the idea of maybe this is something that they've been trusting in, the Lord's trying to take away from them to get them to trust in them more. And what, are the th- what is the thing that we most trust in in our day? Money. What should we be praying for? <laughs> Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Should we, should we be praying for more economic crisis and it hit a little harder? I don't know. But uh, if the Lord took away our money and our houses and our cars and a bunch of stuff, we would cry bloody murder, but it might be the very thing we need to help us put our trust back in God. That's exactly what I was thinking, and I've been saying this to a bunch of my friends. Are you taking this opportunity right now to preach the Word of God? Because there's so many people that have seen seen their savings, and a lot of what I'm seeing and hearing is, my retirement fund has dropped 40%. And I heard that from actually a gospel preacher a couple weeks ago. I say, are you taking this time to preach that God is good and God will provide for us? And I think that especially, I I try to take every passage in the Old Testament, how does this apply to my life? And especially in this passage, you think about how all the things they trusted in was gone. What is left to trust in? We all use this time to preach, don't lay for yourself up treasures on the earth because they are insecure and you can't count on them. There's not a thing here in this life that you can trust in. You better look to something else. You know, we're investing in things that have no future. Yeah. You can tell us uh, talking about judgment in here because God, God's taken away their good things. They have no excuse. They're going to have no excuse. And uh, they, they have no good things. Yeah. Thing to rely upon but God. This is a judgment blessing. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? What a blessing. He's taken away so that they will trust God. He's blessing them by taking those things away. Uh, in here, this list of things that God's you know, removing from them. You know, We see things in verses uh, 12 and 15, like witchcraft and idolatry, which are inherently and explicitly sinful things. But we also see some things that that don't necessarily have that same connotation with, you know, uh, military protection and physical protection in, in fortified cities and things like that, which, you know, we don't always think of, you know, having having a safe, you know, country or a safe city to live in as being a, a bad thing. But when that's what we trust in and that's where we put our our stock in, then that's when it becomes just as bad as as 
bowing down to a graven image because then the fortified city or the military strength becomes our idol. You're exactly right. We need to take this more seriously. I think we have serious issues with divided trust. And we are more likely to first call the doctor, first call the financial advisor, first call the insurance agent, first call whoever. And, and really in our whole thinking, it's like we rely primarily and think of, well, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do something else. And when down the line do we even think of, well, maybe the Lord could help a little bit. <laughs> if I really can't work it out in any other way, he probably got something to do. We just need to have much more of a sense of dependence on God. what would help us is if, well, look at a marriage, for instance. If a husband saw his wife turning to everyone else for help, for guidance, for support, how would he feel? And similarly for the wife, how do we make the Lord feel? Could you imagine the jealousy and the anger that it causes the Lord? And yet he still loves us. And it's for our own good. We need to trust Him. Much better. Very good. Good comment. Alright, well, we got through five chapters, four, yeah, five chapters. I uh, thought we might get through all of it. We had really good discussion, which was really uh, helpful. And uh, a lot of fun uh, doing that. Uh, so uh, probably we'll try finishing up Mike and starting something else next month. <laughs>